So first of all, I would like to say a huge thank you. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to have the distinguished professor, Sylvia Walby, has given up some of her time here. We're, we're both in Toronto at the Metro Convention Centre presenting this week at the International Sociological Association's World Congress. Um, so thank you so much for, for giving up some of your time to take part in the UCD Sociology Podcast. I very much appreciate it. Um, so I'm, if it's okay, uh, Professor Walby, I might just give a little bit of a background about um, where you're coming from and what your work is about. Okay, certainly. So um, you um, are currently um, the distinguished professor of sociology at um, University of Lancaster. You hold you were the first person to hold the UNESCO chair in gender research. Um, you have been honoured by the Queen with um, an OBE, the Order of the British Empire, for services to equality and diversity. Um, you're considered to be a public sociologist. Um, so that means that your your work is engaged. You're, you're engaged in research which is designed to have an impact on the world, um, and you're particularly concerned with gender um, inequality, violence, um, and economic crisis and social theory. Is that a kind of fair enough estimation well, of? That, that's absolutely fair enough. Yes. <laughs> Can I ask you just because you know? A lot of the people who are going to be listening to this might be from the Politics and Society course, which um, is a new course that is coming into the Irish, has started the Irish Leaving Cert. Can I ask, how did you kind of enter this field into the arena of sociology? I've always been a sociologist. I've always wanted to think about society and how things changed. And sociology provides the concepts uh, to think about it. So I've always thought in a sociological way. So did you always recognise things that were maybe wrong with society? Did you kind of notice sociological problems that were around you all the time, issues that were um, related to some of the themes that you work on now, maybe economic crisis or gender inequality? Were those things that kind of you noticed as a young person growing up and you thought, right, I want to actually dedicate my career and my working life to trying to resolve some of these issues or understanding them better at least? I think understanding why there's inequality and why there's injustice are issues that lots of people think about. And sociology provides a way of addressing it in a, in a systematic way. So then you can decide what you want to do with that knowledge. But building that knowledge is crucial before you can make a decision as to what to do about the things you care about, about the varieties of inequality, class inequality, gender inequality, ethnic inequality, the, the lack of justice for those people who've suffered forms of violence that nobody seems to be really taking much notice of. Uh, so in order to think about that properly, sociology beckoned. Very good. So sociology was an outlet for you to start to investigate those problems further and see how, how they can be resolved, I suppose, in one sense. Um, so, yeah, I just um, there are several items on the internet that young people or any of our readers or viewers, sorry, will, or listeners <laughs> will be able to access if they Google your name. Um, one of which is your fantastic TEDx talk, um, which is entitled Crisis, if anybody wants to look at that. And in that talk, you discuss um, economic crisis, which leads to societal division. Um, so divisions of religion and ethnicity and gender and gender, and you you talk about the concept of cascading the cascading crisis, um, and how inevitably these societal divisions kind of cascade into violence. Is that yes? I, I think of the cause of the crisis being in finance and the removal of the democratic controls over finance, which were put in place after the previous crisis. 1929, there was a financial crisis, gave rise to an economic crisis, deep recession. The divisions that that gave rise to, the ethno-national religious divisions in Europe, 
became fascism, became world war. And the question is whether we're cascading from financial and economic crisis into fascism again in Europe. And so the book asks those questions about, well, what did happen to finance? And after the last crisis, we put controls on finance to stop its volatility. 1944, Bretton Woods, 15 years after that crisis, they put in place controls over finance to stop it damaging the real economy. In the mid-1980s... So this is kind of like the Thatcher and Reagan era of... In the, in the 1980s, exactly, we took those controls off. So there would have been um, a big economic crisis in Ireland at that time as well. We would have seen huge waves of emigration. That's kind of one of the, the things that we see every time that there is an economic um, crisis mm-hmm. in Ireland. We see waves of emigration. Just as much in this last crisis, we had, again, another great wave of, of Irish people leaving the island because uh, it wasn't economically viable to stay there. Um, and, that, and that second crisis was not inevitable. We didn't have to take those controls on capital off. We didn't need to. It was a mistake. So those controls that were specifically put in place back in the 1930s, which were, they kind of pinpointed where we had gone wrong, where society had gone wrong as a result of this economic crash. So hence they put in these these provisions to stop that happening again. They decided to have this kind of neoliberalist experiment, I think you you talked about. 1944, inspired by Keynes, a whole series of controls were, were put on finance. And then we got complacent, and the neoliberal project took those controls off. Was it complacent, or was it agreed took hold of, you know, like complacent kind of implies, I guess, that, you know, we just kind of got a bit lax and we kind of let things loose? Or was there something more powerful kind of driving this change to remove these um, regulations that had been put in place? Certainly the neoliberal project is a political project. Um, It's... It was a project which thought that if you took off controls, took off the regulation of the economy, the economy would be freer and better. And the kind of thing that sociology does is to enable us to ask a question. Is that theory as to the relationship between democratic control, the economy, and the consequences, how do we assess that kind of theory? And what I was doing in the book Crisis was looking again at the implications of putting controls on capital. Yes, yes. And to assess that from a sociological point of view, looking at the economy as a set of institutions and using a sociological lens, assessing uh, what went wrong a second time. And can I say, something that I really like about your work is the way you try to take something like looking at the broader picture of the economy as a foundation and looking how, as you spoke just there about the consequences of it, like what actually happens as the result of um, an economic crisis? How does that actually affect people in their day-to-day lives? And one of the um, of uh, the videos that I saw on the internet, the clips, was I think you were speaking to the police foundation and you were talking about your work um, looking at domestic violence um, and about how it had risen uh, as a result of the crisis. Mm. 
And it was something that you had found, like a really interesting finding that you had come up with, was that not only had domestic violence risen, but that it was being underreported or underestimated by the current way that statistics were being used to report that. Um, and that's something, I guess, that's really important, the methodology that sociologists use. So um, are, are you a specifically quantitative um, sociologist? Are you looking at statistics all of the time or are you using qualitative as well? How do you put together something, a project like like you did with the, the crime survey of Britain and Wales? Was that, that was actually your survey yourselves? Or Me you? Methodologically, I mix it. We need everything. You need to have theory, you need to have methods, we need to be able to count, you need to know what the counting means. So you need to have a mix of the qualitative and quantitative methodology. Crime Survey for England and Wales is an enormous, wonderful survey. Every year it asks 30,000 people what's happened to them. So it's the most extraordinary data source. So when we wanted to know what was happening with changes in domestic violence, was it going up, was it down, this was a survey where we could go for what we thought would be the, um, the best data. And then what we found was very odd. We found that although everything that was reported to the survey was buried in the vaults of the computer and we were able to access this data because we, we had public access to it, our figures didn't match the official figures. So you found a little chink in the survey, you found something that so was like, like an inadequacy there. There was something missing, that something wasn't quite... The survey was fine. The difficulty was how the Office of National Statistics was making estimates from that raw data. They were discounting those violent incidents if, more than, if it had happened more than five times to you. So say, for example, I had experienced domestic violence more than five times, or like eight times, for example. Those extra three beyond that five were never counted. So this, had, this was something to do with repeat offenders, and we, that was one of the main parts of that. Yes, domestic violence is repeated, exactly. So if they were cutting it off at five, and it had happened more than five times, this was not included in the estimates. It was still there in the raw data in the survey, so as sociologists we could go in and we could re-examine the data. This was what the, the statisticians were doing, and they were saying it wasn't important to count the repetitions. Isn't that amazing to think that somebody who actually their entire job is to work in statistics would have... Would, would say something like, oh no, that's not important because surely they know better than anyone. And I guess that's, it's, you know, I think sometimes people think when you're a sociologist or a philosopher that really your job is working with the theory end of things. But actually there is a very, it's like an engineering, you can have to have that almost a business type or an engineering kind of brain where you're looking at the mechanics of how things are, are being figured out and you have to be able to, to be accountable for that and kind of look in and say, well, actually there's, there's a problem here with the way that we are measuring measuring, you know, social issues, social problems. Yeah, the measurement matters, the methodology matters. So we had a public debate with the Office of National Statistics. We debated them in public, through the media, and we persuaded them that they needed to do a review. And they've done a review, and they're going to change how they count violent crime. That, that's amazing. What an amazing thing to have changed, and uh, you know, like through, through your research. I mean, that's proper progress, really, isn't it? Mm. You must be very proud of that, are you? We're very pleased to get more accurate figures on, on domestic violence, yes. Because I think once you have accurate figures, then you can start to 
then you can start to ask for change. If you can say, like, actually, domestic violence is a much greater problem than we had originally estimated, then you can ask maybe for more funding or you can pinpoint certain areas where there's bigger problems than others or you can kind of really kind of affect more change, I guess. Yes, it has implications for public policy. Mm -hmm. That's why I think of myself as a public sociologist. Yes, that is fantastic. Um, So do you think that um, economy is kind of the foundation of a lot of, like, linked to a lot of social problems then? It's kind of like the basis of that bigger picture? I think the economy matters, but I wouldn't use the word basis. I think um, the polity matters as well. Democracy really matters. Um, there's nothing, there was nothing inevitable about that economic crisis. What really mattered was whether the democratic controls had been put in place. So the polity matters. I also think violence matters. For those people who experience violence, that's pretty foundational to their lives. Mm-hmm. So I'm not wanting to say the economy is the most important thing. I think the economy matters, the polity matters, violence matters, and civil society matters. How we think about it, how we negotiate the meaning, mm-hmm. that matters as well. All of those four things matters. Absolutely. Um, another element of your work that you're focused on is the, um, the idea of patriarchy. Is it something that you have, uh, in fact, I think some of the, the resources that are available with the NCCA um, discuss uh, theorising patriarchy. Um, so can you kind of speak a little bit about that and what patriarchy means um, to you and how you have broken it down? Um, so I have a few, maybe we could try and tie that a little bit in to understanding from the Irish perspective as well. So I might have a few little ideas of, of how your work kind of... Um, has, a, has affected or is, is kind of reflected, I suppose, within Irish society as well. Yeah. Patriarchy is a system of gender relations. I now more often use the term gender regime than patriarchy. It's the same thing, really. Yeah. Um, but it, it's the notion that if you change one part of the system, you're likely to change another. If you change gender economic inequalities, you're likely to change gender political inequalities. If you were to change gender political inequalities, for example, having more women in parliament, you're likely to, to have to see changes in the policies towards the economy. If you change the gender balance in decision-making in relationship to issues of violence, the development of the criminal justice system, then you might see changes in the rate of violence. So it's a reference to the notion of it as a system, that each of these different things are interconnected, and if you change one of them, you might change some of the others. So when you're when you're doing work in relation to patriarchy, you think of it in a systematic way, kind of, again, that bigger picture idea of how it's all interconnected. Um, so the idea of pa- patriarchy being a social construct, what do you think of that? That it's basically, it's a cultural idea that we have all kind of assigned... Uh, um, gender roles and stereotypes of what femininity is, what masculinity is, and um, how that kind of plays out, then we all just kind of, uh, as a habit almost, from generation to generation, take that on. Culture's part of it, but so is the economy, so is the polity, so is violence. And culture is negotiated. Uh, I more often use the term civil society to get to that notion of we argue over it, we debate it. Um, it's, it's constructed and reconstructed. There's nothing settled. Things change. Mm-hmm. Ireland's changing very fast. Ireland certainly is changing very, very fast. I mean, there's been several bills of legislation that have been brought in over the last while, which have had a huge impact, I think, for women, particularly and their role um, within societies, and I think for the LGBT community as well. You know, um, 
uh, only this year, um, we've brought in the repeal of the Eighth Amendment in relation to abortion. Um, and I think that certainly helped in terms of conversation and helping women and men within Irish society to really start to think about um, gender roles, um, pay gap is another one. So we might actually, because I think a lot of these are kind of hit upon in your um, six, is it? Let's see now. I have a little list here of your... um, So in, in globalisation and inequalities, which is six more structures of patriarchy, is I've, I've got. I now reduce them to four to make it to make life Very easier good. for everybody. So we're going to four so structures of patriarchy it's instead. Now economy, polity, violence, and civil society. Okay, so. W- um, sorry, I, I didn't have that. And I think actually the students who are doing politics and society might actually still have your six structures of patriarchy. In which um, case, you've got then the think of civil society split into two. So in my early work, I took sexuality separate from the rest of civil society, and they will find that. And I also subdivided the economy. So I subdivided the paid economy from the unpaid economy. And the household labour, was right. it, as well? Yes. So, yeah, so, so that might be a good one. The economy might be a good place to start, really, because we've already been speaking about that. So you talk about paid work and the gender pay gap. And we do actually have... Um, well, it's just recently been brought in in the UK, I guess. Um, there has been legislation brought in to help to overcome the gender pay gap. Isn't that correct? Isn't it? The Companies with was, yeah. 250 or more staff now have to be more transparent in terms of um, publicly disclosing the gender pay gap within their companies. The uh, original le- legislation in both Britain and in Ireland was introduced when both countries joined the European Union. The European Union insisted upon it, and both countries had to introduce Equal Pay Acts and Sex Discrimination Acts. Mm -hmm. And then when the legislation was found by the European Commission not to be good enough, it didn't reach into equal pay for work of equal value, then those countries, Britain in particular, had to improve uh, their, uh, their legislation. So that's an example of there being more than one polity, and the relationship between the European Union and Britain, the European Union and Ireland being really important and the European Union being an extremely important force for the legislation on gender equality in both countries. Mm-hmm. So there is actually a talk of a bill coming in at the moment. I think Senator Ivana Batic is hoping to bring in a bill that is based, I guess, on the English bill or the UK bill. Um, but it will be very, very similar, but it will be 50. I think it's if you have a company with more than 50 employees, you'll have to... Um, to disclose um, what the gender pay gap is there as well. Basic, um, basic transparency. How can you not have basic transparency? I know, I know, I know. Um, it is crazy, really, when you think about it. And you know, it's funny because I think a lot of people are, are, are ignorant of that. Um, I've been a secondary school teacher for the last 15 years, so I work in an environment where pay is very much set. You know, um, I'm going to get the same. I know exactly how much I'm going to get per year. It's based on an incremental system. It's based on seniority. So the longer you work, the more money you get. There's no difference between um, men and women in terms of... Now, there can be differences in terms of promotions and various things like that. But um, really, I guess... You, it is possible to be completely ignorant of that situation unless you're working in an environment where, where that is the case. But I was shocked, really, when this... And it was really just something that started to be spoken about more in Ireland, and it was possibly as a result of the legislation the legislation that passed in the UK, you know. 
I think that's really one of the most important things is that beginning of a conversation, really, um, in terms of um, trying to, to that that um, shift that you talked about, you know, that kind of gradual progression of society, you know, and just begins with a conversation, I guess. Well, um, there were a lot of organisations who have been involved in those issues of gender pay. So don't, let's forget the trade unions, which have long been arguing for the significance of it. Uh, think about the significance of how many women are in the parliaments and are prepared to take those issues up. So the issue of the, the gender composition of the relevant organisations, parliaments, trade unions, civil society... So you call that the velvet triangle, was it, at one stage? That, that, that's, that, that's, that's Woodward's term. <laughs> it, it, that's right. Yeah, it's so, the, so th that's the idea that there's this strong kind of triangle of, of people who are uh, at an alliance, basically, is that what you were talking about, an alliance of various uh, organisations that are trying to push for equality as such? So civil society is made up of lots of different organisations and it's rare that a single organisation by itself makes a change. It's usual to think of there being a multiplicity of organisations and institutions being, being relevant. Again, that notion of a system. Lots of institutions need to change before the system as a whole changes. Mm. Fantastic. Um, um, so just back to the economy, and when we're talking about the, the structures of patriarchy, uh, another one is um, household labour, and I guess the role that women specifically have played in uh, terms of household labour, and this if informal economy where women would um, be doing the household work, they would be minding each other's children, or they would be minding the children at home and not being recognised financially for that work that they were doing. Um, do you think that that's something that you, you, you can see changing uh, within this lifestyle, lifetime or it's something that's going to kind of stick around for for quite a while? We've seen major changes in women's rate of employment. So women's employment has increased in both the UK and Ireland. In Ireland, particularly spectacular increase. But that's even typically though women gone are, along with yeah. both maintaining disproportionate amount of time spent on domestic labour. That's what I was just going to say. You know, I think a lot of people would argue that women have, over the last generation, like, say, for example, my mum, my mother worked in the civil service, and when she got married in Ireland, you had to leave. She got married in 1979, I think, and a condition of being employed by the civil service, a state organisation, was that you had to leave your job because you were now a married woman. So all of a sudden she found herself unemployed, and, um, of course, the... Um, she was encouraged to, you know, after being married, to have plenty of children and kind of, you know, actually, that's also a large part of the Irish Constitution. That's something that the role of women is something that's very specifically defined, you know, as being within the family. And, you know, um, so that's something that's, uh, you talked about language and how important language is and the meaning that we associate with things. And I guess that's something that's trying to be changed a little bit at the moment as well. Yeah, that, that marriage bar was not only found in Ireland, it mm -hmm. was found in other countries as well. Yeah, yeah. These days we think it's extraordinary, and in that way uh, culture has changed. Yes, yeah. And we're here in Canada at the moment, of course, and I have family living here. My cousin lives here with his wife, who's Canadian, and it's really funny at the moment because he has plenty of time off. Um, I was off with him today, actually, and um, he's on paternity leave at the moment because here in Canada they have a very different approach when it comes to uh, looking after children and whose role that is. Um, so there, I think it's 12 months they're given, and they can divide that up any way they like between the father and the mother. So um, she took the first six months, and he's taking this the next six months and they were able and they could have done it three months and whatever you know they could have broken it up whatever way they wanted really but quite a progressive way I think to look at you know who's going to be looking after 
the child and how that work goes from there. And, and that's very variable between countries. So mm. just a little bit further south than where we currently are in the United States, there is no legal basis for maternity leave. They don't have legal maternity leave. Yes, which is... It, it, countries vary mm, enormously. It's crazy just to think, you know, like, as you say, like, we're only a matter of miles away and it's just a, that each country has their own different approach. And that can have huge knock-on effects then for how society... And even, as you say, how society views things, you know, like, these um, systems and structures that are in place really have a knock-on effect for the worth of, say... You know, well, what what is the worth of looking after your child? You're placing more worth on going back to work, and you're saying that's far more important than to spend a significant um, after you've you've given birth to a child. You know, how much time should we like? The Scandinavian countries are seem to be quite progressive in terms of how they they give maternity or paternity leave. Yes. And gender relations vary enormously. Sometimes people think they're fixed and they're biological, and the variations that you're talking about constitute that evidence that that gender is malleable, is changeable, and can change very quickly indeed. And, and countries which in some ways look very similar can in fact be very different in their practices on gender. Mm -mm -mm. Uh, so another element that you spoke about there was um, quotas, or sorry, you spoke about representation, female representation within Parliament. Uh, and in Ireland, recently, we've just brought in um, a new piece of legislation relating to quotas. So basically, um, political parties will be cut, I think, 50% of their funding if they don't have at least 30% female candidates and 30% male candidates at least um, who are represented as candidates for whichever election and that actually had a huge positive impact in terms of we have and now to be fair we only have I think it's 22% um, of our um, TDs or Chuck Doll at the moment are are female but that was a huge um, increase it was a 40% increase from the previous general election in 2011 and what's more is so we have 35 female representatives at the moment um, in the Dáil. Um, but 19 of those who were um, elected in 2016, it was actually their first time um, going forth for election. So I kind of it's, it's encouraging more women who maybe had never thought that they would have a place in Parliament before to, to go forth and kind of think, you know, well, actually, you know, maybe I've got a chance here and maybe there's, there's things that I can contribute in this arena. Well, it's less than 100 years ago that women got the vote. 1920s in Ireland was women, when women had the vote had the entitlement to go into Parliament at all. Mm -hmm. So these are quite fast changes, perhaps not fast enough. Yes, yeah, yeah. And um, actually, um, it, it, it has been shown to work as well. I think there sometimes can be a little bit of, you know, suspicion around bringing something like that in. Like people feel, well, well, maybe we won't have good quality candidates if we're just going to have a quota and we're just going to make sure that we have, you know, a certain amount of this type of person or a certain amount of that type of person. But actually there has been research done that shows that this, this actually does have a, a great impact, you know. Um, but there's various conditions with which that will work. So there's Mary Brennan, who sits right across from me in UCD in the Geary Institute, and herself and Fiona Buckley have done some work on that. And they found that it does work, um, um, quotas for female candidates, as long as it is approached with a genuine attitude of goodwill, that it, there's no kind of um, malice in terms of kind of, or um, bad attitude or 
begrudgery in terms of bringing these female candidates into your political party and putting them out there as candidates. And also, women have to be put in a position where they could genuinely have the opportunity to win a seat, as opposed to just being put out there as a kind of token female candidate or whatever. And that that did actually happen in that 2016 election. So it is good. We are having making progress, I think, in terms of... Um, um, you know, the division of gender in Ireland and things are starting to come together. Sexuality is another element of the structures of patriarchy that you speak about. So double standards um, for men and women, you know, even in terms of, you know, how we present ourselves, you know, the idea that, um, you know, just just basic human functions, uh, if that women can be tarred with a brush of um, immorality or impurity if they step outside of the social norm, whereas a man is considered a legend or, you know, that it's okay for a man to to have sex outside of marriage, say, for example, but a woman would be considered, you know, I'd guess. So you, you've got, you're referring to sexuality as culture. You could also refer to it as something which is organised um, through politics and the state. Regulations such as whether or not abortion is legal, whether access to contraception is legal, whether it's possible to get divorced. Uh, these are ways in which politics structures the possibilities of sexuality and the social relations of intimacy in which we currently live. Mm -hmm. And they are changing in, in everywhere, including in Ireland. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Um, so you're talking a lot about the influence of law. So basically, are you saying that it's important to have those legal structures in place and that that's how we as a society start to understand what is acceptable and what is normal and what is culture. So culture sometimes comes from from legislation? It's a system. Each of those parts <laughs> affects each other. So culture affects what law is possible and when law is passed it will affect how people understand it. Law will then change how people practice and how people practice will then change how they think about it. So they're all interconnected. Yes, yes. So you're, you're trying to tempt me to say one of those things is more basic <laughs> than another, and I'm consistently refusing it in order to no, drag I'm not. you back to the I'm concept just trying to of understand. system and saying all of these yes. things matter. Bigger picture, bigger picture. It's never going to be just one thing. And it's right. interesting, actually, because I recently interviewed Kwame Appiah uh, in NYU, and he spoke a little bit about that. I asked him because he's professor of philosophy and law, and I wanted to know, um, we were talking about the marriage rights equality referendum in Ireland um, which recently passed in 2015 and he said that in the states that let's say for example 50% of people did not want this law to be passed when it was um, something that was up for, for discussion there. However after it was passed 70% of people agreed with it. So it's totally correct what you're saying that you know statistically we can see that it is correct that the law actually changes people's minds you know, that once a law has been passed and something becomes normalised, that it does actually change people's minds as well. It changes how they practice their lives. The orthodoxy and, and the orthopraxy. It changes the yeah. practice. Mm. Changing the practice then changes how people think about it. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd put the practice in. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's in, an important element between. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and violence. So this entire conference is kind of discussing violence really in one sense as well as kind of focusing on that element. Um, so domestic violence is something that has come up in your work a lot. Um, and we have had actually, we've, we've just recently, 2017, we have changed uh, our own domestic violence bill, making it a criminal offence to have coercive control, psychological control uh, in terms of kind of 
you know, acknowledging that that is a part of domestic violence as well. Um, that, I mean, it's a kind of a contentious thing, a really thing to talk about in one sense as well, because it is women. It is uh, in your research and you have found that it's more predominantly women that have experienced domestic violence. Am I correct? We've always lo looked at violence as a whole and then looked at the gender disaggregation of the violence and looked at the gender profile of the violence. So there's violence against men as well. Yes. But the ma majority of it is against women. And when you look at the frequency of it, the more frequent domestic violence is, the more often it is against women. Yes, yes. And the more injurious it is, the more likely it has been to be against women. Mm -hmm. So we've got these quite careful different gender profiles when you're looking at domestic violence in different ways. So yes, the majority of domestic violent crimes are against women. Yes. And has that influenced your work in terms of feminism? Um, or has that your focus on domestic violence as one element of your work, has that come out of your work as a feminist then? So which came first, I guess, is were you interested in domestic violence and that that kind of um, made you made your work in feminism kind of something that you're really focusing on? Or were you working on feminist theory before and then that was something that you really felt needed to be focused on then? Doesn't everybody think domestic violence is wrong? Well, I'm, I'm, yes, but not everybody writes Doesn't about it. And every crimi criminologist looking at issues of violent crime have to take seriously the, the fact that the majority of crimes by domestic perpetrators are against women. Just pausing on saying that you have to be a feminist to see these things is important. I think these, are, these issues of violence and the disproportionate use of violence against women are issues that sociology treats seriously for everybody and it's a matter of the development of the science here. Sociology is a science has been uncovering things which were previously hidden and it's the, the use of the scientific me methodology makes it visible for then the public to act upon. So I'm just pausing on you seeing it as something which is appropriate for only one particular set of political actors and saying, sociology says this is of general relevance. Yes. And mm -hmm. gives the evidence on a universal basis in a way that lots of people can see the importance of that it. That everybody within society should be... And the fact that there is legislation, which is passed as a consequence of democratic debate, means that the majority of people think that domestic violence is wrong. Yes. Not only that, so it's not... It's not a feminist issue as such? Of course it's a feminist issue, but... It's something which is recognised by lots of people, and it's 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 now become mainstreamed. Yes, and that notion of ma that issues which had once been raised by feminists have, have then become mainstream issues is important here, and I think domestic violence is an example of something which was once raised as if it were only a minority issue, has now been shown to be something of much broader concern. And that's an example of that process of gender mainstreaming. So it's entered mainstream discussion. So I don't think any textbook, for example, of sociology could any longer underestimate the significance of gender inequality, of gender-based violence. And that's the mainstreaming of gender into sociology. 
uh, as well as into the analysis of, uh, of public policy. Okay, fantastic, thank you. Um, and the relationship to the state, of course, which is a very interesting one in terms of the Irish um, example. You know, the relationship, um, we're talking about patriarchy here, of course. Um, so, um, you know, I guess the way that, I mean, Irish society I think it's a patriarchy, I would have to say myself, you know. And you spoke about patrilineal society, which is where, did you speak about patrilineal society, where um, land gets handed down to, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about one of your talks that I, no. <laughs> Ownership of land. Ownership of land, yes. Yeah. Is, is something which is infected by, affected by inheritance laws. So that's definitely a gender issue. Yes, yeah. So I'm thinking about it in, in Ireland, um, maybe not this generation, but certainly a generation ago where um, it would have had a huge impact for men, say, for example, you know, that um, land was handed down to the, the son, of the, the, the head son of the family, the eldest son of the family, and then that was it, you know, for the rest. You know, we had huge emigration problems with the landless poor of rural Ireland, you know. But again, there was huge issues for, for women. I spoke about how my mum had to leave her job in the civil service in 1979. Um, um and many other ways um, that and, and women have... Property is relevant mm -hmm. for land and for mm -hmm. agriculture. It's also relevant for housing. Mm -hmm. And until we had the Sex Discrimination Act, it was quite hard for women to get mortgages and buy houses in their own right. It's still very relevant in questions of divorce and how property is split or isn't split. So those issues of property are perhaps often underestimated as gender, as gender issues. Yes. So mm -hmm. perhaps in Ireland they come more to the fore because of the, still the significance of land and agriculture. But yes, these are definitely gender issues. Yes. You know, I like... Can I just say, sometimes I feel um, kind of really self-conscious talking about something like domestic violence or feminism um, or something like that, because I'm afraid almost that I, I might get it wrong or, you know, that, you know, that I'm going to, it's like a controversial issue or something like that. And sometimes I, I kind of wonder, you know, how young men feel talking about something like feminism, especially with things like the Me Too campaign um, and various uh, campaigns, kind of feminist campaigns like that, you know, that are at the moment, you know, kind of great, I think, focuses of conversation and hopefully going to create social change. Um, do you, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that young men shouldn't be afraid to, to discuss um, feminist issues or to, to call themselves a feminist? Or um, do you think that, you know... Sociology should make this a space in which all of these issues of gender can be discussed by everybody. So... It's a place where these can be had as proper arguments based on, on evidence and on theory and that these can be properly addressed. And students should argue with each other. Sociology is an argumentative discipline. And when the argument is done respectfully, but carefully and without too quick an attempt to agree, then those arguments can drive forward our knowledge and can be very productive. So nobody should be shy of having an argument about the nature of gender inequality as long as it's done carefully, respectfully and drawing properly upon the scientific evidence, which as a sociologist I would always want to do. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm just aware that I don't really have you for that much longer, but um, maybe, you know, just to round up the, the last little bit of our um, podcast here, do you have any advice for any young sociologists out there? I mean, you know, what might their contribution be? What could they do? How could they get involved with sociology? And, you know, what, 
what good advice have you got for any budding sociologists out there? Most of the important issues of our day are addressed by sociology. Anything you care about can be understood, analysed uh, within with a sociological lens. Use the evidence, develop the theories, and argue and care about the outcome of those arguments. Sociology is the site of the most important discussions about society today. Okay, listen, thank you so much. We very much appreciate you taking out the time in the middle of Toronto at the Convention Centre. Well, I have no doubt you are absolutely so busy, very, very heavy schedule. So thank you so much for being on the UCD uh, Sociology Podcast. Uh, I hope this is going to be a great resource for the students of politics and society and all of the, last, the rest of our listeners. Um, thank so you for once inviting again, me. Sylvia Walby, thank you very much. Thank you.